you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by Nualtra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. The International Dysphagia Diet Standard Initiative, otherwise known as IDSI, provides a framework that offers common terminology to describe food textures and drink thickness for people living with dysphagia. The IDSI framework has been in place for three years and it's helped significantly with dysphagia management, but it's also brought several important questions to the surface. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Neve Condon to discuss IDSI, including what's working and what more needs to be done. I'm now going to hand over to Neve to tell us a bit more about herself. Thanks very much, Harriet. And in my best Irish accent, I'm known as Dysphagia Chef, but I also set up the company Dining with Dignity in 2019, and it was to provide catering care and consultancy training in the healthcare sector. I've over 20 years experience in catering industry, and I've developed recipes and methods to suit dysphagia diets. I've also contributed to newspaper articles, webinars, and the development of cookbooks for cancer research with uh, Professor Dr. Aoife Ryan in UCC in Cork. More recently, I was asked to contribute to a book for UNESCO and the patron for UNESCO and Child and Family Research Centre is um, Killian Murphy. So you can imagine my eyes when they when I saw the actual invitation on the email to uh, Neve Condon, invitation from Killian Murphy to submit a chapter for a book. I thought, oh God, so somebody having a laugh here. But Yes, dysphagia has opened my eyes to the world of nutrition in a very, very different way. Thank you so much, Neve, And we're really excited to delve into this topic with you in more detail from your unique perspective as a chef. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to Neve about her experience of working with patients living with dysphagia, including the pros and cons of applying the IDSI framework. We're also going to talk about what actions still need to be taken to improve dysphagia care. So without further ado, as many of you are familiar with, we're going to dive straight on into our quick fire round of questions so that you can get to know Neve on a more personal level. So Neve, I'm going to throw at you a food related question to begin with. Can you tell us about your favorite food or meal? Oh, that has to be my mother's Christmas dinner. Simple. Um, it brings memories back and it just brings everybody around the table. And it's my whole philosophy, putting oh. people all around the table. Can't go wrong with those classics, can you? Yeah, perfect. Now, Neve, it's currently International Women's Day on the particular day that we're recording. And I wondered if you could tell us about a female that has inspired or continues to inspire you today. Actually, yes. Um, she happens to be a dietitian, believe it or not. Um, and I was introduced to her back in 2018. And she's in Australia, in Perth. Um, her name is Louise Murray. When I met her first... I was a very inquisitive chef trying to find out as much information as I possibly could. And it turns out that, yes, she's a dietitian, but she's also a very intuitive businesswoman and how to build on the business aspect of being a dietitian in aged care and promote the whole well-being of, of aged care. So I was my eyes were opened up again and I just thought she's very inspiring to make sure that everybody's included at the table but that the dietitian is also included at that whole environment in the in the care industry where they're, the chef is afraid of the dietitian, the dietitian is afraid of the chef, and she's just trying to open up the arms. And I think that's fantastic. 
No, that's really interesting. Perhaps she'll be a subsequent guest for the Dietitian Cafe in the near future. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Final question to you, Neve: is uh, do you like reading? Have you read any good books lately? Funny you should ask that. Um, no, I have no time for books at the moment because my head seems to be stuck in research recipes and usually on my downtime I am looking at regular meals when I say regular meals restaurant quality meals and saying oh I wonder what that would look like in a dysphagia recipe so that's what I do I don't really read books but I, I kind of my brain works differently do you do you look at cookbooks or do you kind of get your inspiration um, as you go along as I go along really I sat one day and I looked at a lamb shank dinner and I thought I wonder, is it possible to put that into a puree? And yeah, off I went and scraped the bone down, scrubbed it off and pureed the meat, put it back together again. Absolutely brilliant. We look forward to hearing more about that as we go into this episode. So Neve, just to set the scene, can you tell us a bit more about your background? Obviously, you're an incredibly passionate chef. Where does this interest in food and nutrition come from for you? I, I'm going to have to rewind back on when I was 12 years old, I started working in my uncle's delicatessen. So it was a delicatessen, but it was also a, but- a butcher shop. And at the time, my uncle was trying to get me involved in more of the food aspect of things. So, yes, I was in and I was helping with everything and anything. But um, he said, if you can cook, you'll always have a job. And I said, I don't want to be a chef. I wanted to be an engineer. So, um I think it started back then when I was asking loads of questions on the actual, the muscles in the meats when I was watching him butcher some animal carcasses up and and obviously then explaining to the customers how the meats get cooked and the best cooking process for each cut of meat. But it wasn't until I went into aged care in 2014 that I understood what cooking really meant and it wasn't just because people wanted to, wanted to eat. I was there to provide nutrition because it was a case of they had to eat and I was to try and keep them alive. So it was a bit scary. So the passion for the aged care cooking came in when I thought, well, I'm not going to give that to my grandmother or my mother so, or even eat it myself. So why should I expect somebody else to eat it? But unfortunately, it was considered the norm in that environment that I was in at the time it was a case of just cook it blend it serve it and I scratched my head thinking there has to be a better way surely there's training um, and surely there's there's somebody else I can aspire to but there was there was really nobody and it made me research and annoy dietitians yes speech and language therapists yes GPs anyone that would actually speak to me business owners included I was asking the questions and also sitting down with the residents in that nursing home and watching what they were eating, how they were eating um, and, and finding out their likes and dislikes. Because obviously, if you blend a full meal in a mixer, it looks like a smoothie. But if you have the elements of something that something like carrots, my grandmother hated carrots. And if I put carrots into a casserole and blended it up, she'd know they were there. So she wouldn't eat the whole casserole. So it was learning about what they liked, what they didn't like. And then when I found out how to blend the food individually and sit and watch, it was, it was, it was like a light bulb moment. People were either 
pushing the food aside or they were eating and they simply did not eat the foods they did not like. So it was, it really got me going more. And the more I did, the more I wanted to learn. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to do. So I, I found as well that when I started in this area, that I was very quiet, withdrawn, happy to be in the kitchen as a chef. We tend to like being in our own little corner. But when I found that there was no voice for these people, I just couldn't shut myself up. I felt someone has to speak up for them and somebody has to do better. And here I am. The rest is history, as they say. Now, that's really interesting because you mentioned you had this uh, desire to be uh, an engineer at the beginning and then obviously you've ended up as a chef. But I imagine that you have to apply a lot of that kind of design element to the meals that you're constructing for your residents and patients. And I think also what you said about kind of um, the presentation of the food and how that sits with the residents. I think a lot of dietitians listening will really resonate with that. Many of us are so familiar with hospital food, which if we're being honest, doesn't always get the best reputation. Um, I wonder if you can just take us back a few steps. What kind of training does somebody have to do to become a dysphagia chef? Is it something you tend to learn on the job or did you have to go down a specific route? Uh, Again, that's another very good question. It was something I learned on the job because there was in Ireland, there was no training available. Yes, there might have been companies providing um, training on thickening drinks, but nobody really providing much information on how to puree food correctly, safely, and even modify the other different textures in the food. So how did I go about it or how long did it take? I'm still learning. So that's that's kind of a short answer on one end of it, but it took, it would take definitely up to, I'd say three months to get somebody on the, the why we do it, how we do it, and also the presentation techniques, because not everybody is going to have the same skill set. So it will take a bit of time to get that right. That's very interesting because um, as a dietitian, when I think of care homes, nursing homes with chefs, um, I imagine it's quite a niche area that you're working in. I don't know how many there are in the country that work in this area. Is it is it a common area that chefs go into or is it quite relatively rare that you come across other dysphagia chefs? It's it's actually rare. Um, and as a as a role, I didn't I actually fell into that whole role of an aged care chef. I was sold a lifestyle more than a role. I was sold nine to five, Monday to Friday, no late nights, no split shifts. And I thought, this is very attractive. This, I can do this in my sleep until I found out, oh, goodness, there's so many other things. So it's, um, it is very varied. And other chefs in the industry, they will be there in aged care. But being an aged care chef, you have to wear so many different hats. You have to be able to cook renal diets, as you all know, and you have to cook all these other diabetic diets. And usually down the end of the list, are the dysphagia diets. So yes, you're, you, might, you might be right in saying that a lot of hospital food tends to get bad um, press and everything. However, I've seen that most of the chefs I've been into and, and work with, they're there for a reason. They're there because they care. Unfortunately, the training wasn't available to them. So that's why they're in the position they're in now. Um, and hopefully in the next couple of years, that will all kind of even out and training will become more available to them so at the moment in Ireland there's only there might be maybe three four 
dysphagia chefs that are currently training anybody. But I'm the only one currently that's actually self-employed. I took that leap of faith back in 2020 when COVID hit, um, where I thought, okay, I really have to help as many as I can. And uh, I jumped ship. I left the nursing home and took off and started training and, and organized that company to be set up as well. So. Well, it's very um, appropriate that we're discussing that on International Women's Day. You're, you're obviously a very entrepreneurial woman yourself. Um, tell us a bit more about what a typical day looks like for you, Neve, um, especially since you've started up your own business. Yeah, um, it's, it's funny. Again, that's another very good question because um, as a chef, I'm a very organized person in the kitchen. And anybody that knows me outside of that, they'd say, oh, my God, you know, I could be late for a meeting. But since I've done this whole leap of faith, I get up every morning and it could be could be six because I could be on a call to Australia. It could be seven, depending on what's going on. I usually just check the diary because if I don't have my diary, I don't know what's happening. If, unless I write it down, it's non-existent. So the diary is my main aim. Then it comes to maybe training packages. So if somebody has booked me for training, they have me for the day. So it's not a case of me turning up at 12 o'clock and there for four hours and I'm gone again. I go into the care home at breakfast time. I will sit around with the residents, watch the staff, watch the kitchen, and I'll do a full audit on the mealtime experience for the care home. It's just something that I feel that is necessary to provide the best possible training. And then it gives me more of a focus on where they're weak. And also then I know where their, their strengths are. So I don't have to focus on certain things and it's not repetitive for them or even boring. So from eight in the morning to maybe 12 at noon, then I just sit around and we have a chat about what I witnessed. And then after lunch, I watch the, the lunchtime setting again and watch how the chefs prepare food. After lunch, then we have another quick rundown and, uh, and, and they kind of, they open up more because they feel that I am there to help. I'm like an extra tool in the box. And then we sit and we have the training and the training can last anything from two hours to four hours, depending on what the chefs want. But I really request at all of the training sessions that I have that everybody's involved, that it's not just the chef that you have the kitchen porter, you have the cleaners, you have the nursing staff and the care staff are highly important. So I believe it's it's a complete team effort that it's not just one person. And when you talk about the training that you offer, is this in terms of the IDSI framework? Are you training them on how to produce different textured foods and thicken liquids? liquids? Could you talk us through that in a bit more detail? Yeah, so... We'll do what I do is I, I obviously I, I've witnessed them preparing drinks and preparing some of the food. So I will ask somebody to prepare me a drink on level three, for example. And without picking holes at that person, I'll ask everybody else that's sitting around to tell me where that person went wrong. So people learn from people. I'm again not there to pick holes, but just to encourage and to highlight. I'll get four people to actually thicken a drink. And I've witnessed it happen where they're just taking it in regular little cups, teacups, and they're not measuring. Even though they know they should, they're just, oh, so that's approximately whatever it is, like 200 mils, that's approximately that. And they put in the required number of scoops that they need. They have a look and they think, oh God, it's not thick enough. We'll just add another one for good measure. 
and it's to highlight that. And then you, you highlight to them that, okay, it needs to be measured. And you can see then across the board that there is not 200 mils inside in any one cup. And every level three drink is different. So it's to, because ITSI was designed to make things more consistent and not have people guess, my aim is to try and get them to understand if they follow exactly what's what's done and what's actually and the procedure, every drink should be the same. If it's the same liquid. Liquids are, and this is where um, sometimes ITSI framework is a bit different. It varies. But if I ask them to stick in a drink, it's usually a cup of tea because everybody gets the cup of tea wrong. Um, and there is, a, there is a right way and there is a wrong way. And it's a case of if your cup of tea is wrong, you'll never drink it. And then when it comes to the food side of things, it's getting them to understand the social aspect of eating a modified diet, as well as, yes, the correct textures and the itsy framework. Um, people struggle mainly. They always ask me about pureed food, but I think the most difficult level to do is level six. Um, because people struggle. They think, oh, we'll just chop it up and it's fine. Not correct. You have to have, for level six, yes, it is size restricted. Yes, you have to have the 15 millimeters, but people forget to check the texture. They forget the fork pressure test. They forget to double check and see, does it fall apart easy enough? They never check to see how long it was cooked. They don't do anything in preparation in advance of the cooking environment as well. So they don't even marinate the food. So in my eyes, every level in itself is very important. And yes, the ITSI framework needs to be discussed when I'm doing the training. But a lot of the focus is on why we're doing it. Because if you can get them to understand the why, they'll walk on water for you to make sure that everything is done correctly, especially for the person that's sitting in the chair. Yeah, and I really um, admire that patient-centered approach. And I think, again, that will resonate with a lot of our dietitians listening. I wanted to ask you, do you have, have much interaction with healthcare professionals in this training work that you do? I know you mentioned the nursing staff earlier, but um, do you have much interaction with dietitians, for example? Yes, um, I'd always have a dietitian in my pocket, as I call her. But dietitians are my main, my right-hand person, as well as the speech and language therapist. I do a lot of work with speech and language and everything I do, or if I come up with another idea, I will ring up the speech and language department in Tala Hospital here in, du in Dublin and I'll just put it to them. What do you think of this? Do you think it will work? And I've often even brought them a sample of food to say, look, this is what it is. And it's, Yes, it's me trying to find out is the correct texture, but it's also getting that stamp of approval and getting somebody that has been trained on the, the, the dangers of dysphagia and that they can see where the pitfalls will be to test it. And the dietitians, on the other hand, are, huge, are a huge part of ITSI that people forget. And they're like, but why? Why dietitians? Well, we're, we're modifying food. We're diluting it. We're diluting the nutrient content. So if you are modifying any meal for somebody with dysphagia, you definitely need to speak to dietitians because they're going to help you fortify that food to make sure that you're not losing any of the protein or any other nutrients that are needed and required. So yes, is the answer to your question. I work very close with all of those. 
I think that's really interesting, that message about diluting the nutritional content. I think that doesn't often come to the forefront of your mind when you think of a texture modified or um, fluid thickened liquid. But of course, dietitians were always going on about food fortification. So it's very interesting, that example that you just gave and how important the dietitian is as part of that multidisciplinary team. I just want to take a couple of step backs here, um, Neve, and kind of set the scene for what this IDSI framework is. Can you mm-hmm. explain the different levels within the framework and also the different IDSI levels of testing? Um, what, do you, what are the main messages that you think dietitians should have around these two topics? Well, what I've noticed, first of all, for any testing, to be fair to IDSI, when they came up with the testing tools, they came up with the simplest things that you could possibly have, a fork and a spoon for the food. So every kitchen should have a fork and a spoon, regardless of what's going on in the kitchen. And we start off with level seven. And level seven has two, has actually, it's it's subparticles. So you have level seven, which is regular foods, and you've also level seven EC which is easy to chew. And there is no size restriction on easy to chew. The only difference is that you have to be able to cut it easily with the side of a fork. And that it's and that when you put the pressure on the fork, that it breaks away easily enough. I find this helps with people that have had um, an operation. They might have only the use of one arm. They might have had a stroke. They might, there might be loads of different reasons. They might prefer just to use a fork or a spoon. And, and it's, it's perfectly okay then for them to have level seven EC. Then you go down the scale. So you go to level six, which is soft and bite-sized, which I mentioned earlier on. Soft and bite-sized means that somebody shouldn't have to actually bite a piece of food. It is 15 millimeters and 15 millimeters maximum. So it can be smaller. It also has to be tested with a fork. So you have a pressure test. So you put the fork on the piece of food and you press, press it down with your thumb. And if your thumbnail blanches white, then it's, it's okay. But it's not just that, that yes, you put the pressure on the fork and the food will collapse. But that when you release that fork, that the food should not retain its original shape. This works perfect for vegetables, as you can imagine. But for meats and proteins, not so easy. So you can imagine someone has cooked some beef casserole and they have the beef cooked, but they didn't cook it long enough, even though it's fully cooked to temperature and it's over 75 degrees. So therefore it's safe. It's not itsy safe. So there's food safe and then there's itsy safe, as I call it. So you have to have the pressure test again with the fork. If If you press it down and remove the fork and the fork, and the food, sorry, the food retains its original shape, well, then it's not level six. A way to kind of combat that is marinate the meat in advance. And I've always said it, it's slow and low. So you cook your food very slowly at a very low temperature for a very long time. And you're nearly guaranteed, no matter what you're cooking, then will always fall apart into the correct particle size for itsy level six. And again, this, this texture is, um, has other issues where you can't, it's not really a good idea to serve it dry. Yes, it doesn't have to be swimming in a sauce because then therefore you're going down a different road with mixed consistency, which is a completely different ballgame. You want the food to be moist because sometimes people with a swallowing difficulty have an issue with dry mouth. 
So they have an issue moving the food from the front of their mouth to the back of their mouth and down their throat. So it, I would recommend that most of the level six foods would be coated in either a sauce or a puree of some description to help move the food from the front of the mouth to the back of the mouth. Um, and then we're going down to level five. So level five, again, is tested with a fork and a spoon. Level five is minced and moist. And where the particle size differs here is every particle should be four millimeters or smaller. And how you test that is you get the fork and you press it on the food and each particle should go between the prongs of a fork. Regular dinner forks have the prong width between each prong is four millimeters. And that's the easiest way of testing the particle size. However, it's not just particle size. As I just mentioned with level six, it's also the consistency. So it has to be moist. And what that means, again, it shouldn't run off a spoon. It shouldn't flow. You should, it should be just moist enough that when you pick it up on the spoon and it comes off the spoon in one piece. So there, again, it's moist as well as the particle size. And then we move on to level four, which is pureed. Level four is pureed, yes, smooth, no lumps, should be pushed through a sieve for fear that there's any fiber or grizzle left in the foods. And yes, it's tested with a spoon and a fork again. So you have, when you lift up the piece of the fork, you have a mound above the fork and a slight tail underneath the fork. And for the spoon test, it's the same as level five. You pick up a scoop of, of the puree and you flick it off the spoon in one lump. It should not pour off the spoon, but it has to come off in one lump, leaving minimal residue. And you don't want something that resembles something like peanut butter. So there is, there is a fine line of, of puree. Yes, peanut butter is puree if it's smooth. However, it's too sticky. So we can't have stuff that's too sticky. Um, and the majority of people that I've seen are actually between level six and, and five. Even level four is, yes, there is a few of those people that are out there. Yes, there are a few level three. So level three then it would be almost like soup consistency where it can't be eaten with a fork, it has to be eaten with a spoon. And level three on the food is exactly the same flow rate of level three on the fluid. So your meals, as you can imagine, I mentioned dilution earlier on, you've now diluted your meals down again. So we have to make sure that the nutrient content of the food we're serving is going to be high enough. Again, if somebody, God forbid, is on a level three diet, I would recommend having the dietitian sit beside you while you're cooking the food because it really is important to make sure that you're not lit. It's almost like cordial for all the world. You get some cordial, you put in some water and the more you water you add, the more you're obviously diluting down the, the food. So it's the same principle. Level three is also tested with a syringe, a 10 mil syringe. And I find the test is very good and it, it does exactly what it's supposed to, but I find it very tedious in one, in one sense. Um, yes, you can test the flutes on level three, level two, level one with the syringe. So it's a 10 mil syringe. You put the liquid in up to 10 mils. You remove the plunger with your thumb underneath and you have a stopwatch. So you release your thumb, start the stop stopwatch and after 10 seconds, put your thumb back underneath and see where the level of liquid is on the syringe. 
And depending on where it is, it's either level one, two or three. It's just, it's, while it does test the food and test the drink, sorry, does test the drink. I just think it's um, there. Itzy are definitely going to come up with a new way and they've already come out with a new funnel. I don't know, have you seen it yet, Harriet? Um, where it's, yes, it's a syringe, but at the top, instead of a plunger, you have like a funnel. So it's easier to put the liquid in. And instead of the measurement on the side of the syringe, they have just level one, two and three. So it takes the guesswork out of it for people that they don't have to know that from zero to two mils on the syringe, it's it's level one. And, and then from two to six, it's a level three. So it, it will take the guesswork out. But again, it's tedious. Can you imagine a director of nursing or a nurse going around testing all the drinks with a syringe and standing for 10 seconds? It's just a small bit tedious on that part. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, I mean, that was a fantastic explanation of all the different levels. Thank you so much for going through those so thoroughly. Um, In practice, are those testing methods implemented in care homes and nursing homes in your experience? Sadly, no. No, is the the short answer. Um, Even up to recently, I had to ask a chef, could I have a fork? in the kitchen because I wanted it. Number one, I wanted to taste the food he was serving and I couldn't believe that they're not tasting the food. Is there too much salt in it? Is it too spicy? Is it, does it taste any, does it taste good? But also to test the texture of the food. And sometimes the perception from the chef is, oh, I can't taste that. Like, why not? You just cooked it. Um, so they're not tasting it, but they have this thing because they've pureed it, it tastes different. No, it doesn't doesn't taste any different and when it comes to the drinks the the perception of the drinks is it's on the side of the tin if you follow exactly what's on the side of the tin that it should work in theory yes however when you watch people make drinks it doesn't always happen they don't have time number one to kind of stand back and go okay and let me get this let me measure it and let me put in the correct amount and then they're not even adding the correct thickener you know, they're using the thickener, yes, but they're using a spoon to actually mix it up. Um, it's recommended the fork is used so that you get everything combined, um, but it doesn't always work. That's very interesting. And, and what do you do if you do have concerns about chefs that you've um, observed? Yeah, um, the concerns I have are... Not, nothing to do with presentation, believe it or not. It's the, it's the safety aspect of it. Um, they're, they're not aware of why, if you have to add thickener to food, why you're doing it. The perception is that let's get the food blended up. We need to add a bit of liquid because it's not moving in the blender. So we'll add some liquid. And the result then is you have soup. So, oh God, now we have soup. It's too thin. So what do we do? We add some thickener, but we add way too much. And there's nothing technically wrong with that. Yes, it's the correct texture. From a dietetics point of view, there's no nutrition at all in it because they've diluted everything down. From a chef's point of view, um, they're not going to taste that. They're never going to taste that because the way it looks with the thickener in it. The correct way of doing it, if you just picture carrot, carrot has its own water content. And when I'm cooking carrots for any modified meal, I tend to boil them as opposed to steam them. And I don't boil them in like 
10 litres of water. I put a very small amount of water into a pot, but I put a lid on. I want to retain as much as I can. So I basically cook the carrots. Um, so there might be two thirds carrots in the pot to maybe one third water. Lid goes on and I try and retain as much of the nutrients as I can. So those carrots and whatever minimal amount of water, because everything will have cooked off, goes into the blender and gets blended. If that's left to sit for even 20 seconds, the water that's within the carrots tends to find its own level. So you will see it kind of leak from the food. But I've added no extra water to it. The only purpose that we add thickener to food is to stop the water leakage and to prevent somebody aspirating on on liquid that might end up inside their mouth. So we don't add thickener to food to thicken it. We only add it to absorb the liquid. So we get the correct texture first. Very interesting. There's there's such a science to it from your explanation. And I can only imagine that it must be difficult for chefs, especially if they have multiple dietary requirements or textured modified diets on different IDSI levels. From your experience, that must be quite challenging working in a kitchen environment, having to cater to all these different requirements. Yeah, I mean, they're they're focusing because usually it's a diet, what they call the diet section. So everything goes into the diet section. You have renal diets, diabetic diets, um, low sodium, you have everything as well as dysphagia diets. So the chef in that area, they tend to not have salt too much. So they're, they're kind of limited because they kind of cook everything towards renal to a point and diabetic. So everything gets cooked that way so that they don't have to worry about there's 10 different people over here with one problem and, and, you know, everybody has their own specific requirement. So as a chef in the diet section, you have to try and filter out what's needed. Um, yes, we have renal and we need to double boil potatoes. So everybody gets those double boiled potatoes that have no flavoring whatsoever in them. Um, and that's challenging then for the person that has dysphagia with no renal requirements whatsoever. And the taste behind it, it doesn't appeal to them. So it's a challenge, number one, yes, for the chefs, but number two, then for the care assistants, because they're watching the person at the bedside not eating the food because they've had no salt or they've had no seasoning. But then it's the education around how else can we add seasoning? Can we add herbs? Can we add certain spices? And it's just to get the chef to think outside the box. That's my biggest challenge, get them to think outside that box. Absolutely. And I'm also interested to hear from you about the reception that you receive from patients, because I imagine if you're used to eating normal textured foods and fluids to suddenly go from that to a significantly texture modified diet, for example, if a patient's just had a stroke, that's a huge change, especially for someone who's been a big foodie and very much, you know, really enjoyed that, that experience of eating from the conversations you've had with patients, how do they find it when they're following a texture modified diet? They're very frustrated, um, a bit angry as well. They just give it to me is, is you know, is, is one of the things that they would say, I don't care. Just give it to me. If I choke, I choke. And you sit down and, and I think a lot of it as well is because they're isolated. Because if they're on a modified diet, they, they tend to kind of, and this doesn't happen in every facility, but they tend to eat alone because their meal is different. They don't want to be seen as the person that's having the baby food. And 
if they're not eating alone, so if it's in a different care facility and they are eating around the table with somebody else and their meal does look like baby food and everybody else is getting something completely different, the longing and the wanting of having somebody else's sandwich, for example, and they can't have bread. So it kind of... almost like teasing them if they are eating around the table with with everybody else. They, I think a lot of the time as well, it was if you sit with them. So yes, not every chef has the time and energy to sit down with every resident and every patient that they're cooking for. I was privileged enough that my boss at the time said to me, do what you have to do to find out what, what needs to be done. So I was able to sit and have meals with people. And I think as well that if they saw somebody else eat the meal, that it wasn't just, oh, this is muck. They were they tend to eat better. People eat with people. It really is a social environment. Um, and I was even asked for, somebody asked me for a fried egg. Well, you know, my favorite food is fried egg. Can you just make me a fried egg? And I said, I, I don't think so. And she said, why not? I said, good question. I'll come back to you. So it's people like that also inspire you to do other things. So yes, I was asked for a fried egg. I didn't know how to do it. Off I went and you just think differently. How, how can I make the egg look like a fried egg? So I did. I went off and I boiled the eggs. I separated the two. So we have the white and, and the yolk, blend them separately and came back to her. And she said, that's a boiled egg. I thought, God, yes, you're dead right. It is a boiled egg. So how do I make it taste like a fried egg? So I had to get spray oil so I sprayed the egg after I had it reshaped back to the way it should be and also flicked a bit of salt on it and gave it to her then but I also I was cheated a small bit I gave it to her with her pureed sausage so she'd have the whole smell of 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 like a fry and she ate the whole thing wow (laughs) that's an incredible um anecdote that you've shared because I can imagine that the difference that that made to that patient's life was significant even though it might seem to us like quite a small thing um food is so important to people as you know and to have been able to create what she wanted is just incredible I I wanted to ask you are there any particular foods that don't lend themselves to this itsy framework that you know are there any no-go foods um and also we're seeing kind of a rise in plant-based diets for example vegans cultural diets what challenges does that present to chefs working in this environment? I think um, most foods can be certainly adapted to the ITSI framework. Where we find where we're going to find the trouble is with level four and the starches. So rice in particular, um, pasta, the potatoes, potatoes, my goodness, potatoes themselves are a different challenge. But the less work you do with a potato, the better it is. So when I cook potatoes, I slice them, don't quarter them, because when you quarter them, the outside of the corners cook first, the inside then doesn't. From the cooking process, scoop them. So you put them directly into a sieve and they will fly. Once the potatoes are cooked through, they will fly through that sieve. Then just add some milk, cream, butter, if we wish. If you want to go plant-based, you can add some almond milk. There's no reason why you can't. Um, fortify these potatoes at this point as well. So you could add skim milk powder to these. Well, you just asked me about other things. So yes, we will mention the plant-based stuff, but when it comes to rice, I tend to blend 
rice with cauliflower. So I do half and half. And I tend to use basmati rice because you get that nutty flavor from basmati rice and it overcomes the cauliflower taste. The reason for the cauliflower is the water content. So yes, you get the starch from, from the rice, but the cauliflower and the water content helps for it to pass the itsy spoon test, which will indicate whether it's too sticky or not. And the same goes for pasta, but gluten-free pasta works better. I find it, it's a bit easier um, to get it to pass that test on the itsy scale. Interesting. So there's, um, yeah, there's no, no challenge that's too big for you, it sounds like, Neve. There's always a way around these, these obstacles. Um, the plant-based food, you mentioned plant-based food, and it's funny you should say that because I was asked by a company to have a look at plant-based um, foods that would work for a puree. And they were just wondering, would it work? And I think it will work, full stop. Um, I have had people ask me for plant-based foods in a puree level four, purely because they, that's their diet. They're either lack, sometimes they're lactose intolerant, sometimes they could have other issues going on. But even for someone that is in aged care, that has a gut issue. So in the evening time, in some of the nursing homes around the country, you'll find that they have a lot of older people might have stomach issues. So they have pains in their tummy, they have gas issues. Maybe it's lactose, maybe it's not. Maybe it's lack of fiber, maybe it's too much fiber. But the plant-based foods that are out there, obviously they're going to be less and less amount of lactose in them. So yeah, they're, they're not going to affect somebody's gut, but they puree beautifully. I've done some lovely, um, oh goodness, what was it? It was a blueberry pie. So you ha- yes, you have the crust on the bottom, but it's not crust. So it's puree. Then I had a blueberry filling and then I had a coconut and blueberry outer. It's like the pie center. And on top, I had aquafaba meringue. So there, again, it's a case of, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? But you just, you break it down. You break everything down into simple steps and you just go through it. And when I did the dysphagia challenge, I did it for, initially I did it for three days with a dietitian, And then I went back to it again, 12 months later, and I did it for a week. And while I was doing it, I ended up cooking a vegan meal just by chance because um, there was nothing else in the fridge that was tofu. And I said, look, it was beautiful. Actually, it was a Thai curry. And the flavors and the smells were were what everybody else was going to eat. The only difference to my food was I had tofu and somebody else had chicken. And you, yeah, you say, okay, that's fine. But did it pass the ANSI test? Yes, it did. I even added coriander with peas and garlic, almost like a pesto but it was a puree to give another element of taste because when you puree food, all the flavors tend to merge together unless you get a punch of flavor. So yes, I had the Thai curry sauce and yes, I had the coconut tofu and yes, I had the coconut rice. But when I added the element of the coriander and peas, it was like, whoa, what's after happening? But what I noticed was, plant-based foods were so much easier to swallow 
than if I was to have chicken because I did a test because I had the dietitian beside me and I said, you eat that one and I eat this one. And then we swapped over and just swapped over notes. What we noticed was that the chicken was far stickier, even though it had passed the ITSI test, it was far stickier and it took longer to go down than the tofu. So it might be a new, a new way forward for dietitians when they're putting meal plans together, maybe to include some plant-based products. Definitely. And that fits in with the BDA's One Blue Dot initiative, which promotes more plant-based eating. So that's very interesting. Um, when I spoke to you before, Neve, you talked about this dysphagia challenge that you did. And when you weaned yourself off of the texture modified food and went back to normal texture food, I think you mentioned you had a, a bit of a scary choking episode. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. Well, if you can imagine, I was on a pureed diet so level four food and I also had level four drinks and I had that for a week. And the original challenge was that I would only buy the foods that were suitable for level four that were available readily in a supermarket. And I thought, OK, this is going to be easy. So I ended up with Greek yogurt, um, some chocolate mousse and there was nothing really else, no savoury food. So I tried the baby food aisle. So I had all of these foods lined up for a week. Uh, about day three, I gave up um, in the sense I had to cook my own meals myself. So that's when I went down the road of the vegan meal. Um, I even pureed barbecue ribs. I went to, I was going to a barbecue on the Friday and I didn't want to be left on my own in the corner with a smoothie and the spoon. So I bought ribs that were pre-cooked inside in a shop and brought them home, heated them, pureed them remolded them back around the bone so that they looked okay and went to my barbecue and had them. So I, I did this thoroughly for a full week. The hardest part of the week was the drinks. Um, yes, I was blending them and I was definitely making sure that they were tested correctly, but they were level four. So it was just that bit more difficult because you had to spoon them as opposed to drink them. I think on any, the, the most I consumed on one day was 600 mils in any one day the least I had was something like 80 mils in a day and then my head was bursting but come the end of the week on the Sunday I thought I can't wait for tomorrow and I didn't really know what I wanted to eat the following day I just said oh I can't wait so the following day I was just boiling some eggs just to have some eggs ready I was going making sandwiches actually when the eggs were cooked I peeled one and I looked at it and I thought oh that looks great so I just popped it in my mouth and started chewing and, and then I started choking and I was on my own and the fear that took over me because I couldn't call anybody, number one, because I was there was a lump of egg stuck in my throat. And I couldn't drink anything, obviously, because that's not the right thing to do. And you panic. Yes, I know I should have coughed, but I couldn't even do that. So I panicked. So this was going on for like, at least 30 seconds before I realise, okay, you've cough. But I'm a very, what I would consider very healthy person and I didn't have any swallowing issues at all. And yes, I followed a level four diet for a week. And after one week, my muscles just got used to swallowing level four with no chewing involved. So I was able to put a puree in my mouth and literally swallow straight away. So there was nothing involved, only putting something in my mouth and swallowing. My worry um, for chefs and for care assistants is that somebody's going to skip a step 
So if somebody is level five, for example, chefs will think that it's just as safe to give them level four. And they're probably right, it is safe. But if they've been on level five in that hospital, or they've been on level five and in that hospital, they've been given level four. But their swallow care plan says level five. So if they moved to a nursing home or, or a respite unit and their swallow care plan says level five, they're given level five and then they choke. That's where I worry that people are skipping steps because they think it's safer and they think they're doing the right thing. Um, I think there should be more focus on if somebody is recommended level five, that they, they definitely get level five. If they're recommended level six, that they definitely get level six. I think it's really important. Yeah, that sounds really um, awful, that experience that you had. And we can only imagine what that must feel like for, for a patient who's been on a texture modified diet for longer than a week in your case. Yeah. How do you safely transition patients through the IDSI level, presuming that they're able to make some kind of recovery? Yeah, I, I think um, if they are making recovery, so going from level four to level five, I would go down the pediatric route. So yes, level five is four millimeters for an adult, but it's two millimeters for a child. So I would transition them going from level four to level five, but the pediatric level five, not the adult level five, and then come up then to the adult level five. And even going from level five, to level six, I would, I would mince the level six a small bit more than what it's currently been done because it, it's still a big jump. Going from level five to level six is a big jump because level five is minced, level six is not. You have to chew. And most cases, the meat is not soft enough. Vegetables you'll get away with, but there's no hiding behind some of the proteins. Yeah, and I presume that's when a multidisciplinary approach is so important, working closely alongside the speech and language therapists. Um, and on that note, I wanted to ask you whether you feel there's a good awareness from healthcare professionals as to what this IDSI framework is and how to use it in their practice. Um, God, there's slightly two answers to that. There's a yes and no. So um, yes, people are aware of it. However, they don't know what it looks like. So they're aware of the levels, but in terms of food, they don't know what that looks like. What I tend to do to kind of highlight the practical side of it is I will line up all the drinks in all the levels, but I'll also line up carrot again. I'll go back to carrot in all the levels. So I'll have level seven, level seven, EC, six, five, four and three. And the three then will and the four will obviously be the same texture as the drinks in level three and four. When they see it, they, they tend to say, oh, I never knew that. And it's kind of, I, I was shocked because I presumed they did. But yes, they know they can, they can look at the ITSI framework and they can go and they can take what that means in, in their own language and, and in their own recipes and kind of come up with what it should look like. But they forget all the things. So they're measuring, yes, the size, but they're forgetting the texture. They're forgetting the, the actual the moisture content. They're forgetting loads of different things. So in your opinion, what more do you think needs to be done to improve dysphagia care, particularly with regards to educating healthcare professionals? I think it needs dysphagia needs mandatory training because 
this is a health and safety issue. It's not just, oh, by the way, let's just train the chef for the day or let's just train, train the staff for the day. This is as important, if not more important, than manual handling training. And manual handling training is mandatory. Infection control is mandatory. Dysphagia training is someone else will do it. Is It tends to be the situation. And, and most of the time, it's left up to speech and language and dietitians. But they're so thinly spread. They're, they're far, they, you know, it's very rare to get a dietitian to come out. And when they do, they need to come out and assess somebody. So trying to get dietitians or speech and language to go training, it's very difficult. Um, and, and they don't have, they don't genuinely have the time. So they, I feel it needs to be mandatory. If it's mandatory, everybody will buy in because then there's somebody going to audit this. Yeah, I completely agree. And thinking back to my training as a dietitian, I remember we had maybe one or two sessions in the kitchen where we briefly looked at texture modified um, meals, but that was before the IDSI framework came into place. So of course, there are going to be a lot of health professionals out there who, when they did their training, were not familiar with this framework that's in place. So I'm sure there's a, a long way to go. And But like you said, um, time and resources are so stretched, particularly in the NHS at the moment. So it's that fine balance between the two. Overall, in your opinion, Neve, do you think that the IDSI framework has been a success? I do. I, I definitely do, because what was there beforehand was a description. So you had honey thick, you'd nectar thick, you'd pudding thick. And it was like, OK, how thick is thick? Whereas now we have a descriptor and we have some form of tools to measure that. Uh, and it definitely it, it's more consistent. It's not perfect, but it's it's a long way from where we were. And just final question to you, if healthcare professionals listening would like more information about dysphagia and um, culinary approaches to managing that, are there any resources or websites that you would recommend? Well, the ITSI website is the first place that I would go to, first of all, because that, that is where the framework is. Um, and they do also have YouTube videos, but you can Google loads of different avenues on how to puree food correctly if you just put it into google youtube channels come up um, in terms of books i know recently that there was an author in new york julia tukman um, wrote a resource book for people with dysphagia so within that book then she has loads of different resources for people to go to to find information Thank you. We can certainly link to some of those in the show notes as well for people wanting to um, have some more information on this topic. Neve, thank you so much for your time today. That's all we have time for, unfortunately, but you've really shared some incredibly valuable experience with us. And it's so interesting to hear from your perspective as a dysphagia chef. A huge thank you to Neo Outra for making this podcast possible. And a reminder to you as our listeners, that if you do enjoy listening to the Dietitian Cafe podcast, please consider subscribing and or leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon. 